This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Pam Keith, Democratic candidate for Congress in Florida's 18th. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Jordan. It's a pleasure. Yeah, we're really glad to have you. Now, Pam, before we jump into your current race, I'd like to talk about your run for the U.S. Senate in 2016, where you managed to win over 15% of the vote in the Democratic primary, despite massive disadvantages in fundraising and name recognition. Obviously, that's not as good as an outright win, but that's pretty impressive. Why did you jump into that race not having run for office previously, and what did you learn from that campaign? Well, well, thank you for the questions. I'll be honest with you, Jordan. Um, it's a lot that, that went into that decision. First of all, I thought first about what do I know? You know, where are my core competencies? Anybody can run for any office they want to. That's true. But you're only value added when you are running for a position in which you have some expertise. So if you were to look at my background, you would find that I have extensive international relations experience. I have uh, experience in national security issues, especially crypto security. I have extensive and personal knowledge about what our military goes through, what our veterans are going through. My legal expertise are in traditional labor and employment law. All of these are uh, federal issues. Uh, it's what I've done for the many years that I've been an attorney. So in that time that I've been working in these areas, I have had an opportunity to observe where are, there are areas of potential improvement. I've come up with my own platform of how to fix the problems that I've seen. That is what motivated me to run for office, not to, just to be a Democrat running for a seat, but to be a problem solver who has solutions that I want to implement. And so in that vein, I the only offices I even considered were federal offices because the federal law is what I know. At the time that I was making this decision, my congressman, the one who represented me in the district that I lived in, had just been reelected to his second term. And uh, I asked him what his plans were. Um, and he said he was not planning to, to jump out of that seat. He was going to run for re-election. So that's what fueled my decision to run for U.S. Senate, because that was the only other seat that made sense. At the time, there were strong rumors that Marco Rubio would vacate the seat to run for president. So I said, if this is a vacated seat, this is a great opportunity. That's what was going through my mind at the time that I made the decision to jump in the race. Obviously, the political stance shifted out from underneath me, uh, and, and the person who was representing me in Congress decided to run for that Senate seat. Before I could even make a move, the party had already identified who they wanted to back to run that seat. They wouldn't even entertain a phone call from me. Like I couldn't even track down where the person who was making all these moves was. You know, they were here and there and they wouldn't answer my calls. So rather than try to chase after these people, I just decided to stay in my lane. I believed 
when I began the race that I think I would make an excellent U.S. senator. I still believe that. Uh, and I felt like, well, why not just go for it? Granted, I was a newcomer to politics, but I've always believed that if you believe, if you feel strongly about something, if you feel you're qualified for something, even if you have to convince people to see things your way, why not just spend your energies going for that which you want rather than spend your energies chasing that which you think you can have? Um, so I just went for what I wanted. I may not have prevailed, but I definitely don't consider myself a loser. So what made you choose to jump into this race? Well, I mean, this seemed like an absolute natural fit to me. First of all, this is a district I live in. I always feel like that is the most sensical thing. You know, represent where you live and the people you know, the relationships you've built. That's what made sense to me. But also, this seat is now held by an incumbent Republican whose politics are simply odious. They they are uh, lockstep Donald Trump politics. They are politics that uh, makes decisions that hurt people, take people's health care away, balance the books on the backs of the poor, the elderly, the suffering. That is a morality that I simply cannot co-sign on or tolerate. The people in my district are incredibly frustrated with him, with the Republican Party. I think the time is ripe and uh, it's an absolute natural fit for me. So what are some of the top priorities for you in your district? What are the problems people are telling you about and what are the solutions you're offering? Well, there are, I think, many issues that are incredibly important, but the ones that I hear the most frequently from the people that I'm engaging with are first healthcare. People are absolutely concerned about the spiraling costs of healthcare, the lack of access to affordable health coverage. Uh, people are afraid of losing the Medicare coverage that they have and when they have Medicare or Medicaid. We have a lot of seniors in our district. In fact, it's the sixth most uh, senior district in our country. But we also have people who simply cannot afford their medications, cannot afford health care for their children, uh, and they are very, very concerned about that. So that is one of the things that I, I, I deal with constantly. Um, and, and the second issue is very much a local issue dealing with the environment. This is a district in which the St. Lucie River flows from the center part of the state out to the, to the beach. Uh, the St. Lucie River and its uh, lagoon and estuary are truly gorgeous natural resources that we love and that they are being turned into uh, a septic system uh, through discharges from Lake Okeechobee and through runoff from agricultural lands to the north of the river. It is an absolute travesty what is being done to our St. Lucie River and people are looking for answers and solutions to a very complex but um, a not particularly new issue. And then of course, gun reform. Parkland, the Parkland shooting happened just an hour south of here. Florida is a state that is home to the NRA and has been absolutely under the vice grip of the NRA for, for decades and people are sick of it. People are no longer interested in sending thoughts and prayers after tragic shootings. They want answers that will prevent those deaths in the first place. And that is why they're responding so positively to my common sense, practical solutions, not just with respect to assault weapons. Uh, obviously, we are uh, talking about assault weapons, but that accounts for about 139 deaths a year. What about the other 33,000 dead Americans from gun violence? I have a solution that deals with that, that mitigates gun deaths on the front side by keeping weapons out of the wrong hands in the first place. So those are the issues that I'm talking about most frequently. But I don't want to lose 
sight of the fact that the threat to our national security, our sovereignty, and our election process trumps all of those, pun intended. Donald Trump is a menace. He needs to be impeached now. He is a threat to the the global stability and peace. He is a clown that is besmirching the office of the presidency. And unlike some other Democrats who do not have the courage or the political will to state firmly that they will vote to impeach this current president, I speak about it zealously, boldly, and unapologetically. That's who I am. So in terms of election integrity, a big concern within our own borders is voter suppression. In Florida, the Republican Party has very effectively disenfranchised voters. On the ballot this November is a measure that would allow formerly incarcerated people to regain the right to vote. The Intercept estimates that the practice of disenfranchising people convicted of a felony disenfranchises 25% of the voting age Black population in the state of Florida. Are you in support of this ballot measure? And as a member of Congress, how would you work to protect voting rights and expand ballot access? First of all, I fully support this measure, and I supported it when my dear friend Desmond Mead initiated this process of balloting to get this measure on on the November ballot. He started several years ago, I guess three, four years ago now, um, and I was right there with him uh, advocating for the restoration of voting rights. And it's not just voting rights. I mean, I want your audience to understand that in the state of Florida, when you lose your voting rights, you also lose your ability to get licensed as a lawyer or a doctor, as an accountant. Um, it really puts you on the outside looking in for a lot of different kinds of jobs uh, and loans, uh, housing programs, and so on. So it is devastating to the people who get put in this box. It's it's d- designed to keep people from being able to reintegrate into society. It is a tragedy and I am fully supporting Desmond, and now the ACLU has taken up this incredibly important cause. But I will be honest with you, all of this voter suppression stems from a party that speaks about valuing the democratic process, but only wants a certain kind of person to be able to participate in that process. They know that their constituency, or at least their core constituency, will show up to vote, will never get turned away from a poll, will never looked at, be looked at scan, askance or be forced to vote a provisional ballot. Uh, they have sources of information around them, uh, transportation and ease of getting to polling places. For those who do struggle with any one or all of those things, uh, those are the poor the disenfranchised, those who are habitually turned away from polling places, who are forced to vote, uh, unnecessarily forced to vote provisional ballots, who maybe vote intermittently, or who can't afford uh, buying state, state ID. But getting a driver's license in Florida is not free. In fact, it costs quite a bit of money, and in many states it does. So functionally requiring ID, state-issued ID in a lot of places functions as a poll tax. So I, I, I am vociferously against these measures. They've ne- they're, they're a solution without a problem. There's never been any uh, evidence of significant voter fraud in our elections. People are not voting who have no right to vote. This is a myth, an urban legend that was created by the right to, to demonize and make people 
distrustful of people of color voting. Uh, that's what it was always about. That's what cross check is about. That's what Chris Kobach is about. Um, and it is a bamboozlement. It is a it is a fiction that has been used to make voting more difficult for people of color, people who don't speak English as their native tongue, uh, and people that they just don't want voting. Uh, when voting creates outcomes that these people don't like, they jettison voting. That's what they jettisoned. They jettisoned the Dem Democratic Party. Nothing could have terrified them more than watching the democratic process create a black president. Nothing could have destabilized their, destabilized their worldview more than that. And that is why you were seeing um, an acceleration of attempts to disenfranchise, gerrymander, intimidate, disinform, and straight up hack our elections. All of that works together to prevent a diversified voting population from electing people who look like, sound like, and represent their interests. So I, I agree with all of that, and there's a lot I'd like to cover there. The first is that you're, you're absolutely correct that disenfranchising people convicted of a felony has been a method of mass disenfranchisement of people of color who disproportionately vote Democratic especially of Black people. And I, I think something important to recognize is that while re-enfranchising people after they get out of prison is important, it still doesn't address the massive population of people who are, you know, this is a very heavily Black population who's denied their basic rights as a citizen simply because they were incarcerated. Do you believe that that's appropriate? Absolutely not. And and quite frankly, I have taken the lead, jumped out front and said, I support full decriminalization of cannabis. Uh, and quite frankly, I see no uh, positive effect in, cr in criminalizing drug use and putting people in prison. I Because at the end of the day, it does nothing to rehabilitate or to help people get off of addictive drugs. It costs the taxpayers on the front side and the back side. It costs taxpayers on the front side because we end up paying to house people in prisons and we end up paying for the children and the families that they leave behind when they stop uh, earning wages to support their own families. This is a double whammy to the taxpayer. The only people who come out ahead in that scheme is the people who have a financial stake in incarcerating people, which I also strongly oppose. I strongly oppose private prison systems uh, that develop profit centers around caging people. Uh, if you're going to have imprisonment and incarceration, it should be a part of a public system, not a private system that is based on pro, uh, on on uh, economic dr driving economic interests towards incarcerating people. This is something that is morally bankrupt. At the end of the day, if somebody's getting rich off of putting people in cages, you should not be surprised if you end up with more people in cages. And that is precisely what we've seen. The United States has a higher incarceration uh, percentage and number of pop, uh, people incarcerated than any industrialized country in the world, besides Russia. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, we have been moving in the wrong direction on this issue for some time, and we have all we have designed our laws and our prosecutorial discretion and our policing around ensuring that the population that ends up in prison is the population with the least political clout. So, so it's a self-fulfilling circle. You, you put people in jail who have no political clout, and you take the political clout from the people who are in jail, and it becomes a cycle that closes in on itself. And I find that morally repugnant. 
So this caging of people you're talking about, it's been particularly visible recently with the caging of children at the border. And I'd like to look at that in Florida in particular. Florida has the fifth highest undocumented population in the entire country, with about 450,000 undocumented Americans living in the greater Miami, Fort Lauderdale, West Palm Beach area alone. Under Donald Trump, ICE and CBP's activities have increased significantly. In 2017 alone, Florida saw a 75% spike in immigration arrests. Now, of course, you, like the majority of Democrats and the majority of the American people, do support the DREAM Act. You obviously do not support the family separation at the border policy, but there is a misconception in the Democratic Party that the DREAM Act is the highest bar we can possibly set when it comes to immigration, and that The brutality we're seeing from ICE right now is the fault of Trump, but in reality, the DREAM Act would only cover about 30% of the undocumented population, meaning that family separation would still be legal within our borders as long as it's not of the 70% of undocumented Americans who don't technically fit under the DREAMer label, and as has been entering the public discourse recently. ICE is meant to do what it's doing right now. It has been rife with sexual, emotional, and physical abuse, torture, even murders under Obama as well as Trump. The fundamental purpose of this agency, as stated in a 2003 DHS memo, is to deport, quote, all removable aliens, and this history originates in decisions, legislations, and ideologies from the Chinese Exclusion Act. Now, you are a member of the Justice Democrats slate. That's very important because Justice Democrats has been one of the only PACs in the nation leading on the issue of abolishing ICE. Could you talk more about that? And on a deeper level, the importance of decriminalizing migration. I I sincerely, I I love this, this issue because what we've created is a situation where the, the legal means to come to the United States. It becomes so onerous, so burdensome, so difficult, and so inaccessible that we've created a default illegal market for the movement of people. And I use the word market very deliberately because that's what it is. It is a market. People are getting wealthy off of this. There is there's supply, there's demand, and there's middlemen that are traffickers. Um, and the reason that we have this illegal market is because there's no legal means for these kinds of people to come to the United States. If you come from wealth in your home nation, then yeah, you can come to the United States. Uh, And certainly if you have enough money to invest in a U.S. enterprise, you really have an easy time coming here. But for those who are escaping uh, extreme violence, poverty, uh, famine, um, religious intolerance, uh, attacks because of of gender identity or sexual orientation, uh, there are so many reasons why where you come from may be intolerable for you. And, And the the notion is that this country is a country that's welcoming to the intrepid and those who are willing to come here and add of their gifts and talents and services to our country. But we've never made it easy for them to do that. And we've certainly not made it for people easy for poor people and people of color. 
And yet, if you look at our history, the, the, the people who came here over generations were the poor and the disenfranchised, uh, the people who had no say in their home turf. That's how, why the Irish came here. It was because of famine. Why did the Italians come here? Because of war. Why did the Japanese come here? Because there was no opportunity. Why did the Chinese come here? Because of those same reasons. So, so it wasn't the wealthy of that, the population that came here. It was always the poor. It was always the striving, the ones who, who were desperate for new chances. So, um, I think that that's an underpinning principle and value of our country. I am proposing uh, the creation of a legal means for people to come and not, you know, 5,000 visas out of the demand of 4 million, right? That is where we are. So, so we need a process that allows people to earn citizenship. Uh, and so what I am proposing is, is a, a process where people can come. They, can, they register with a, an immigration office. They are fingerprinted. They're photographed. They're given a, a, a type of a license, if you will, to work in certain key industries that need that labor, be it agriculture, be it hospitality, be it uh, restaurants, or, or there are certain industries that are desperate for that labor. Well, let's give them the opportunity to do that. They are pay their taxes. They, they, they remain law abiding. And over time, they gain points in the system that, that, you know, you gain enough points. You, 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 you stay, you know, in, on the right path and you get a direct, a measurable and attainable path to citizenship. That is a way that you can plan on. That's a way that the country can plan on, that your employers can be comfortable with, and that stops needing the use of coyotes and traffickers. That's the way to have a system that is humane, that is trackable, that is reasonable, that is attainable and fair to all people. It's not open borders for everybody, but it is a means that, that the intrepid and the ones who really want to be here can earn citizenship in a humane and measurable way. That's what I'm advocating. And as for ICE, I find that what ICE is doing right now particularly repugnant because they're not just deporting the deportable. They're deporting the people in a way to terrorize the entire community that they're attacking. It's designed to scare and intimidate, to drive people underground, to cause people to feel unsafe in the places that they felt safe in the past. It has a tinge of not just xenophobia, but terror in the night that kind of thing that we have not seen in the past. Even though the Obama administration did deport people and I objected to it then, we didn't see the kind of nasty, mean-spirited terrorizing that we are seeing in this particular iteration of ICE. Uh, and so I think we got to be really, really willing to look at this carefully. What kind of leadership does this organization have now? What kind of mandate do they have? And more importantly, what kind of people are they recruiting? What are they training people to do and why? These are fair questions. This is not about being lawless. This is about law enforcement that doesn't have at its core um, xenophobia and terrorizing people. I think that people need to be honest about that. And I'm definitely willing to have a, a really good hard look at that. So something I really appreciate here, Pam, is that you understand the inherent cruelty of detention and deportation. There is no humane way to throw someone out of a nation, out of their home. And that the system we have, the system intended, as you said, to exclude and silence people of color from the very beginning is not what we have to do. So thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. I always believe that this country is exactly the country that we make when we step out, step up, and choose to be active rather than passive consumers of politics. If you don't like the decisions the country is making, 
get in people who make better decisions. And if you cannot find someone who will make better decisions, then you run for office and you make better decisions. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government. And you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day, I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. So I want to go back to something you said about Republican voters, because your understanding of the Republican base is something we we don't see that Democratic candidates are very willing to be honest and open about it as you are, largely because politicians of both parties have been found to overestimate the conservatism of the general electorate and fail to recognize how genuinely popular progressive policies are. Given that your district is generally considered red. How are you going about campaigning and how are you witnessing this dynamic play out in your primary? Well, you know, I gotta be honest with you, Jordan. I don't make decisions based on what the voters wanna do or wanna hear or whatever. I make decisions on what I think is right and I make the best case that I can. You know, I drive people to my worldview. This is not me sticking up a wet finger in the air trying to figure out what direction the wind is blowing. That is the difference between politics and leadership. My goal is to shape people's opinions, not just ascertain what their opinions are. So I lead from the front. I explain why certain policies make sense and others do not. I inform. I educate. I give people history and background. I can find the conservative case for progressive values or the progressive case for a conservative idea. I find the nexus between the two. But the thing is, I'm not willing or particularly interested in just being another person who goes to Washington and becomes some amalgamation of consultant thinking or pollster responses. I have a gut instinct about what I think is right I run on those things. I explain to people why I think those ideas are winners and I let them come to me. I ask them to come to me. I persuade them to come to me. And you know what? I'm perfectly okay if they choose not to, but I'm not going to become something unrecognizable in the hopes of being all things to all people. What do you want to say to young women of color like yourself who are considering running for office, but They're scared of the racism, the misogyny we've seen so many women of color facing recently and even before Donald Trump. What would you want to tell them to inspire them 
to throw their hat in the ring. There are three bits of advice that I give to every young woman that I run across who will give me the opportunity. And they they are this. Number one, think big. Women are often taught to think about what they think they can attain rather than to think about what they want to attain. Men, on the other hand, are usually encouraged to, to be intrepid and to go out there and, and you know think of themselves as doing anything. The world is their oyster. Well, I want women to start thinking like that. Think big. Swing for the fences. You can do anything. And more importantly, if you want big things, you should shoot for big things. The second thing I tell them is don't be afraid to fail. Quite often, women believe that if they don't succeed at something, if they fail at something, if somebody thinks poorly of them, that it's an indictment of the whole being, of all the efforts they've put in up to that point. Um, and, and men don't think like that. If, they, if something doesn't go right or if, the, if something goes sideways, a business venture doesn't work out, they shake it off and they go back at, you know, they go back at it. A lot of times women spend a lot of time beating themselves up, very, very concerned about how other people think of them. So I tell them, stop worrying about that. If you fail, it's just an opportunity to learn. Keep it moving, get back in the fight, but it's okay. The last thing I tell them is to tell themselves yes to like themselves and always tell themselves yes. Because there's always going to be people around them telling them no, not you, not your style, not your color, not your skin tone, not your hair, not your body type, not who you are, not what you like, not your voice, not you. And if you add your voice to that chorus of negativity, you do nothing but harm to yourself. So always tell yourself yes. And that bit of advice has done nothing but positive things for me. I will tell you that I consider myself very fortunate to come from people who had to struggle because my ancestors put up with such greater indignities than I do. They faced such bigger obstacles than I do. They had so much fewer resources than I do. They had such an uglier world to deal with than I do. And if they they could stand in the gap, if they could face down the enemy, if they could look a racist in the face and carry on, if they could aspire and hope and work and pray and dream, given what they were facing, then what the Sam Hill am I doing? Being complacent, scared, or worried. They've already fought the worst part of the fight. So what I've got to do is actually the easy part. It may not feel easy in this particular moment, but comparatively, I'd much rather be me than be them. I owe it to them to go down swinging if I go down at all, and I might just succeed. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you, Jordan, for having me. Uh, Thank you for doing the podcast. I want to tell you how much I respect the millennials who are not waiting their turn, but stepping out to be leaders in their way and finding new and creative ways of bringing people into the fold. So thank you for doing this and thank you for having me. And to our listeners, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media. Support us through our Patreon. Check out our merch at millennialpolitics.co and stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening.